This is the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 1, Episode 8. In this episode, I'll review the histories of the three versions I'm using for the podcast. The King James, the New Revised Standard, and the New International Versions. And I'll address the reasons why I use all three. And with that, I'll wrap up this chapter. By its very nature of this episode being a review, it contains much of the same material that was covered in previous episodes, albeit in a much more condensed form. To some, the review would prove to be a bit irritating, and if you are in that camp, just fast forward about 25 minutes. That's when the new material begins. So let's get started. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the NIV with a look into the difference between a word-for-word translation and the dynamic equivalence methodology. If you missed it, you really should go back and give it a listen. In this episode, I'll review the histories of the three versions I'm using for the podcast, the King James, the New Revised Standard, and the New International Versions. And I'll address the reasons why I use all three. So let's get started. Over the past few weeks, I did a relatively deep dive into the making of the King James, the New Revised Standard, and the New International Versions of the Bible. First, there is the King James. The King James Version is a word-for-word translation of the Old Testament, translated from the Masoretic Hebrew text, while the Apocrypha was translated also word-for-word from the Greek Septuagint. The New Testament was translated, once again word-for-word, from the Textus Receptus in English, the Received Text Edition of the Greek text, so-called because most existing texts of the time were in agreement with it. The translation was authorized by King James I in England. With the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603, Prince James VI of Scotland became King James I of England. And also remember that in that moment in time, the King of England was the head of the Church of England. When he took the throne, the number of English translations of the Bible caused disunity in the kingdom. As such, the Church of England was in a divided state. First, there were the conformists, who did not want the church to change, and on the other side were the Puritans, who sought to reform the church. In October 1603, King James called a conference of theologians, lawyers, and laymen to address the issue. They met at Hampton Court Palace. On the second day of the conference, the clergy approached the king and stated their desire for a new translation to replace the Bishop's Bible first printed in 1568 and the Geneva Bible printed in its complete form in 1560. The actual proposal for a new translation came from a Puritan, Dr. John Reynolds, president of Corpus Christi College. The clergy knew that the Geneva version had won the support of the people because of its excellent scholarship, accuracy, and exhaustive commentary. However, they did not want to keep the controversial margin notes, such as proclaiming the Pope an Antichrist. Essentially, the leaders of the church desired a Bible for the people, with scriptural references only for word clarification or cross-references, while King James was attempting to bring unity to the Church of England by producing a unified and new translation of the Bible, free of Calvinist and Popish influence. Accordingly, the king agreed with the proposal. The overall goal was to produce a better translation than any other then in existence, a translation that could be understood by common people. In producing this translation, there were six panels of translators, all appointed by King James. Each panel had approximately eight translators, two panels meeting at the University of Oxford, two at the University of Cambridge, and two at Westminster. The king established 15 rules on the manner the translation would be conducted. 
they're a bit too deep for this overview episode. Refer back to episode 2 if you want the specifics. But, just remember, King James wanted the translation to be both accurate and consistent among all the translation panels, and these rules were a large step in that direction. Previous translations had been completed by a single person or a very small team, and this was a mass undertaking that needed structure and order to remain accurate. The six groups worked separately, and once their work was complete, it was sent to the other panels for comment and revision. The chief members of the six panels then met to make final decisions on all suggested revisions. The translators took into consideration several pre-existing translations. Specifically, the Tyndall New Testament, the Coverdell Bible, the Matthews Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and even the Reims New Testament, a Catholic translation. From 1605 to 1606, the scholars engaged in private research, and from 1607 to 1609, the work was assembled. It has been found that William Tyndall's work was heavily relied upon. This is quite ironic, considering that Tyndall was strangled, then burned at the stake for heresy, and after angering King Henry VIII. Of course, a few years after he was executed, Henry VIII ordered Tyndall's Bible into the churches in England. It seems that this Henry VIII had just about as much trouble making up his mind about which Bible he liked, as he did about which wife he liked. When the translators finished their work, one copy was sent from each of the three locations to London, where two translators from each location, six total, revised it for the final time. Dr. Smith and Bishop Wilson superintended the work as it passed through to the printing press. However, not everyone at the time was open to the new translation. There were some from more conservative other churches outside of the Church of England who resisted the publication of the King James Version. These were unwilling to accept anything rooted in the official Church of England or produced under the auspices of the King. At the time of its printing, the King James Version became known as the Authorized Version, as it was designed to replace the Bishop's Bible as the official version for readings in the Church of England. In the first half of the 18th century, the King James Version was the primary edition used by the English-speaking non-Catholic churches. After printing and distribution, the Anglican Church's King James Bible took decades to become more popular than the Protestant Church's Geneva Bible. And in one of the great ironies of history, we now find that many Protestant Christian churches today embrace the King James Bible, exclusively as the only legitimate English-language translation. Even though, when completed, it was not designed to be a Protestant translation. Indeed, it was printed to compete with the Protestant Geneva Bible. It is worthwhile to note that after England broke from Roman Catholicism in the 16th century, the Church of England, also known as the Anglican Church, continued to persecute Protestants throughout the 17th century. During this time, the Puritans and the Pilgrims fled the religious persecution of England to cross the Atlantic and start a new nation in North America. And when they did so, they took with them their Geneva Bible and rejected the King's Bible. Therefore, the societies that would eventually become the United States were founded upon the Geneva Bible, not the King James. But that's not the King James Version you read today. You see, the original printing was made before English spelling was standardized, and when printers expanded and contracted the spelling of some words in different places so as to achieve an even column of text, punctuation was relatively substantial and differed from current standards. By the mid-1700s, there had become a wide variation in the printed text of the version along with an unbelievable buildup of misprints. 
Therefore, the universities of Cambridge and Oxford both sought to update the standard text. First to print was the Cambridge edition of 1760, the result of 20 years' labor by Francis Paris. The 1760 edition was reprinted unaltered in 1762, and again by John Baskerville in 1763. Oxford produced their own version in 1769, which was edited by Benjamin Blaney, though it was extremely similar to Paris's edition, but it became the Oxford Standard Text. Similar to the 1611 edition, the 1769 Oxford edition included the Apocrypha, but Blaney usually removed cross-references to the books of the Apocrypha from the notes within the Old and New Testaments, where those had been provided for by the 1611 translators. In total, Blaney's 1769 translation differed from the 1611 text in approximately 24,000 places. Since 1769, a limited number of additional changes have been included in the Oxford Standard Text. For a while, Cambridge continued to print Bibles using the Paris text, but the market for that version decreased while it grew for Blaney's version. Therefore, they began to move towards absolute standardization and eventually adapted Blaney's work. By the mid-1800s, nearly all printings of the King James Version were derived from the 1769 Oxford text. Since the 19th century, the King James Version has remained almost completely unaltered, and due to improvements in printing technology, it was produced in very large editions for mass sale. Next, there is the New Revised Standard Version, which can trace most of its lineage directly to the King James Version. For the lineage, the King James Version begat the English Revised Version in 1994, the English Revised Version begat the American Standard Version in 1901, the American Standard Version begat the Revised Standard Version in 1952, and the Revised Standard Version begat the New Revised Standard Version in 1989. The overall point being that the New Revised Standard Version can trace its origins directly to the King James Version. The English Revised Version, or as it's known, East of the Atlantic, the Revised Version, was produced in the 19th century in Great Britain, with its foundational text being the King James Version of 1611. The New Testament Revision Committee was commissioned in 1870 by the Convocation of Canterbury to update the Bible. The Greek text utilized to translate the New Testament was thought by many to be more reliable than the Textus Receptus used for the original King James Version. The King James translator's Greek text was based on manuscripts of the later parts of the medieval ages, where the English Revised Version used older manuscripts. As such, it is considered by many scholars as being more accurate than the King James Version in a number of verses. In 1871, the British Committee invited an American Committee to join the effort. This committee began active work in October 1872. It was also divided into two companies. One of the rules established by the British was that any suggestion the American committee made would be included in the revision only if two-thirds of the British team agreed. This rule was supported by an agreement that if the American suggestions were put into the appendix of the English Revised Version when it was published, the American team would not publish their own version for 14 years. When complete, the appendix included approximately 300 such suggestions. The revisers were instructed to change the King James Version only if they were deemed necessary to be more true to the original Greek and Hebrew text. Following these instructions, their New Testament had more than 30,000 changes, 
with over 5,000 on the basis of the older Greek manuscripts used in the process. The revisers' committees introduced other enhancements in the version. The text was arranged into paragraphs. The Old Testament poetry was printed in indented poetic lines, instead of prose as it had been used in prior versions. And they also included margin notes about variations in the wording of ancient manuscripts. Also, in its Apocrypha, the English Revised Version became the first version in English to offer the complete text of 2nd Esdras. The New Testament was published in 1881, the Old Testament in 1885, and the Apocrypha in 1895. Next, there is the American Standard Version, which began with the work on the English Revised Version. As the English Revised Version was being published, the British team disbanded. In 1901, after the 14-year agreement between the American and British teams expired, the Standard American Version was published. The key purpose in publication was to include most of the suggestions from the American translation of the English Revised Version. In their publication, the British team used very few of the American team's suggestions, even in their later version. While many of the suggestions of the American scholars stemmed from the distinctions between the American and British usage of the English language, other suggestions were centered on the differences in biblical scholarship and on the different translations from the root text offered by the Americans. Owing that much of the language of the American Standard Version was intentionally limited to Elizabethan English, as well as what some critics perceived as disproportionate literalism, the version never achieved wide acceptance, with the King James Version remaining the utilized translation for most American Protestant Christians. In 1928, the International Council of Religious Education acquired the copyright to the American Standard Version. Between 1930 and 1932, they studied the version's text to decide if a new version was warranted, it was not until 1937 that the Council decided that a revision was indeed necessary. Ultimately, the decision was reached that a thorough revision of the American Standard Version of 1901 was necessary, and it needed to adhere to both the Tyndall and the King James traditions as best as it could, but it also needed to represent the present knowledge of the Hebrew and Greek text, and their meaning concurrently with the present understanding of the English language. The Revised Standard Version was intended to be both a readable and a literally accurate modern English translation. The translation committee consisted of 32 members. The committee divided into two sections, the first concerning the Old Testament and the second, of course, with the New Testament. Their work took about 10 years. Each committee had to deal differently with the problem of establishing the correct original text to translate from. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew and Aramaic texts from only late manuscripts survive, all based on a standardized form of the text established many centuries after the books were written. The only exception was that of the Dead Sea text of Isaiah and Habakkuk, and some fragments of other books. For the New Testament, there were a large number of Greek manuscripts preserving many variant forms of the text. Some of these were made only two or three hundred years after the original writing of the books. There were times when it was clear that the original text was incorrect and none of the versions provided a satisfactory interpretation. In such cases, the translators relied on the judgment of the scholars as to the most plausible restoration of the original text. As before, footnotes were used to identify such passages. When the revision was made, there were many more ancient manuscripts of the New Testament than what was used for the King James and the translators were better able to determine the original wording of the Greek text. The revisers in the late 19th century relied on the same Greek texts that are used today, 
except for a few ancient Greek texts discovered in 1931. However, while they had the same base text, their understanding of the ancient Greek language was less than what was available to the translators of the Revised Standard Version. Specifically, they liked the later understanding of the vocabulary, grammar, and idioms of the Greek New Testament. This development in the study of the New Testament Greek occurred after the translations of the English Revised Version and the American Standard Version, and throughout the text allowed for a better translation into modern English. An overriding motive for the revision of the King James Version, which is true for both the Old and New Testaments, is the change since 1611 in the English language usage. Specifically, more than 300 words in the King James Version are misleading in light of today's language use. I explored several examples of this in the previous episode, and if you missed it, feel free to go back and listen. There were three notable alterations between the Revised Standard Version, King James, and American Standard Versions. First, the translators reverted to the King James Version and the Revised Version's practice of translating the Tetragrammaton, also known as the Divine Name, Yahweh. In fact, the King James Version had used this in four places, but everywhere else, except in three cases where it was employed as part of a proper name, used the English word Lord, or in some cases God, printed in capital letters. The American Standard Version translated it Jehovah. Second, a change was made in the usage of the Old English for second-person pronouns such as thou, thee, thy, in verb forms such as art, hast, dist, and so on. The King James Revised and American Standard Versions used these terms in addressing both God and people. The Revised Standard Version used archaic pronouns and verbs only for addressing God, a rather common practice for translations until the 1970s. Third, for the New Testament, the Revised Standard Version followed the latest available version of Nestle's Greek text, whereas the Revised Version and the American Standard Version used the Westcott and Hork Greek text, and the King James Version used the Textus Receptus. Following much scrutiny and approximately 80 changes to the New Testament text, the first edition of the New Testament was published in 1946. The Old Testament, and therefore the full Protestant Bible, was published in 1952 and the Apocrypha was published in 1957. This then led to the New Revised Standard Version. In 1974, the National Council of Churches, which holds the copyright to the Revised Standard Version, authorized a more complete revision of it. Owing partly to the fact that the Revised Standard Version was completed before the Dead Sea Scrolls were available to scholars, and therefore these scrolls could not have been considered for the Old Testament. Also, the version intended to take advantage of other manuscript discoveries and reflect advances in linguistic scholarship. The version was translated by the Division of Christian Education of the National Council of Churches. The new Revised Standard Version Translation Committee consisted of 30 men and women who were among the top biblical scholars in the U.S. at the time. The new Revised Standard Version of the Christian Bible was first released in 1989. It incorporated four major changes to the Revised Standard Version. First, there was the updating of the language of the Revised Standard Version. Specifically, the Revised Standard Version retained the archaic second-person familiar forms, such as the word thee and thou when God was addressed, but eliminated their use in other contexts. The New Revised Standard Version eliminated all such archaisms. Second, the committee sought to make the translation more accurately reflect the words in the original Hebrew and Greek text. Remember still that this version is a word-for-word translation. Third, they worked so that it could be more easily understood, especially when it is read out loud. And fourth, they sought to clarify where the original text intended to include all humans, both male and female, and where they intended to refer only to the male or to the female gender. 
More to the point, the decision to translate some gender-specific words using more gender-neutral wording in places where gender was not seen to be an issue, such as using the word people in place of mankind. It was the first major version to use such gender-neutral language and thus drew more criticism from conservative Christians than did its 1952 predecessor. The New Revised Standard Version is different from many other modern translations in that it is as literal as possible in adhering to the ancient text while also being as free as necessary to make the meaning clear and graceful, understandable English. When it was published, the New Revised Standard Version was the only major translation in English that included both the traditional Protestant books as well as the books that were traditionally used by Roman Catholic and Orthodox Christians, known commonly as the Apocryphal books. And finally, there is the NIV. Howard Long, an engineer from Seattle who worked with General Electric, began to feel that his King James Version did not fully communicate the Bible's true message. Long approached his pastor and the congregation of his Christian Reformed Church with his thoughts. They then prepared a petition for a new translation that was submitted to the national governing body for that denomination. The petition was initially rejected, but the body reconsidered the issue in 1957 forming a committee to research it. Independently and simultaneously that same year, the National Association of Evangelicals began to consider the idea of a new translation and established a Bible translation committee. The Christian Reformed Church and the National Association of Evangelicals met to discuss the idea of a new translation in Grand Rapids, Michigan in 1961. But even afterwards, there was still doubt whether they should go forward with a completely new translation. Both groups met several times over the next few years, culminating in 1965, when the two groups resolved to prepare a contemporary English translation of the Bible that should be constructed in idiomatic 20th century English. The next year, their decision was endorsed by a gathering of 80 evangelical leaders and scholars. A committee of 15 was chosen to supervise the translation. The members were drawn from various evangelical cultures in the U.S. and agreed to meet regularly. The committee decided that instead of updating the King James Version, as other translations had, to begin anew, using what they considered to be the best manuscripts available at the time. The New International Version was envisioned as a Bible version that would appeal specifically to evangelicals. The Committee on Bible Translation chose teams of scholars to do the actual translation. The Christian Reformed Church officially withdrew from the project in 1966, but a number of their leading scholars continued to work on the project. The translation process was organized around the books of the Bible. Specifically, each book was assigned to a translation team, made up of about two lead translators, two translation consultants, and a stylistic consultant, if deemed necessary. The manuscript used for the Old Testament was the Biblia Hebraica Stuckartensia Masoretic Hebrew text. Other ancient texts were consulted, including the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Theodosian, the Latin Vulgate, the Aramaic Targum, and for the Psalms, the Juxta Hebraica of Jerome. These documents were in either Hebrew or Greek, and sometimes Aramaic, depending on the specific text. The manuscript used for the New Testament was the Koine Greek language edition. The translation process took 10 years and involved a team of over 100 scholars from the US, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. The scholars were from many different denominations, including Anglicans, Assemblies of God, Baptists, Christian Reformists, Lutherans, and Presbyterians. The initial translations were assigned to a team of scholars, 
and then their work was carefully scrutinized and revised by three separate intermediate editorial committees consisting of five biblical scholars. The committees validated the translation against the source text and assessed them for comprehensibility. The lead committee then submitted the intermediate version to stylistic consultants for suggestions to improve readability. Then the text was submitted to the general committee consisting of 8 to 12 members. After that, the text was distributed to select outside critics and to all members of the Committee on Bible Translation. Additionally, samples of the translation were examined for clarity and ease of reading with pastors, students, scholars, and laypeople who were deemed to represent the intended audience. The version was designed to be a balance between a word-for-word translation and a thought-for-thought translation. Sometimes you will see the phrase dynamic equivalence substituted for thought-for-thought. In other words, many parts of it are a paraphrase. In fact, many of the version's critics label it specifically as a paraphrase, hoping that their audience will consider the word to be derogatory. The New Testament was first published in 1973, and both the Old and New Testaments in 1978. The Apocrypha was never translated into a new international version. The translator's work did not end with the version's publication in 1978. In 1984, a minor revision was published taking into account the criticism that had accumulated since the initial publication of the New Testament over 10 years prior. In September 2009, the copyright holder Biblica announced that another revision of the NIV was in process. This revised edition was first published on the internet in November 2010, while the printed edition was published in March 2011, using the name New International Version without any further description such as Second Edition. This edition is intended to eventually replace the 1984 NIV, which Zondervan, the publisher, announced would no longer be published. So you may be wondering why I'm using three different versions. It's probably better told through a story, a parable, if you will. A while back, I was filling up my commuter cart, a hybrid, at the local warehouse club. While I waited the five or so minutes for the pump to catch up with my impatience, a man at the pump in front of me, standing beside his full-size pickup truck, shouted out a question. What kind of mileage do you get? He seemed a bit disappointed when I replied back that it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 to the gallon. He paused to contemplate, and while the gears turned, my pump clicked, letting me know that the tank was full, having taken its usual seven to eight gallons to quench its thirst for the week. He was still pumping as I walked up, about to assume the position to drive off. Just before I got in, he looked up and said, But you can't tow with it. And he was right, as I would be just as likely to win a drag race as to tow anything greater than 50 pounds. But he caught me at a good time, and instead of just shooting him a not-so-polite glance, I waxed poetic. Well, sort of. I looked up and agreed with him. Yes, it couldn't tow, and it didn't seat seven, Heck, it barely sat four comfortably. It also had a hard time getting up to 60 in the single digits, even when going downhill. But it did get 50 miles to the gallon, and that's why I bought it. You see, sir, if there were a car that got 50 miles to the gallon, could seat seven comfortably, could tow 7,000 pounds, had a five-star safety rating, had zero emissions, a 100,000-mile warranty, and cost south of $25,000, we all would be driving it. But that car doesn't exist, so instead, we decide which quality is important to us, and which we could do without, or maybe do with less of. For me, I commute close to 400 miles a week, so mileage was important. And I never had the need to tow with the hybrid. When I needed to tow or haul 7, mileage takes a back seat, and I drive my SUV. 
He seemed a little surprised at this, perhaps previously thinking that I was some sort of single-minded tree hugger. Of course, had he looked in the back seat of the hybrid, he would have seen my chainsaw that I was taking to clear some fallen trees, and maybe he would have learned something about assumptions. But that's for a different day. So what does this little story have to do with the podcast? Well, if there were a Bible translation into modern, idiomatic, understandable English that was also a word-for-word translation of the original text, then we all would use it. But there isn't. And if we all learned Greek, it still would be imperfect, since our present knowledge doesn't have a complete understanding of the language as it was used when the books were written. Not to forget that older and older texts are occasionally discovered and thought to more resemble the original, not that we would really know that. In fact, it's a pretty safe assumption that the original texts are lost forever, and we will always have to make do with a handwritten copy that differs from the original in ways we will never know. So instead, we have the King James, written with a less complete understanding of Greek, and using base texts with assumed errors that come from younger text. But it also presents passages in a very memorable manner with prose that proves to be very poetic. But. Given the evolution of the English language over the past 400 years, it can be very difficult to understand. Then, there is the New Revised Standard Version. Like the King James, it is also word-for-word, but uses older base text, discovered after the writing of the King James, and operates from a better understanding of the Greek language. It also translates the language into more modern English. But, on the other hand, many discount it due to its rendering of gendered-neutral language, Also sometimes, but not as often as the King James, it too can be difficult to understand. Finally, there is the New International Version. It's not a word-for-word translation, and many criticize its perceived evangelical bias, but it's also the best-selling Bible in modern English, primarily due to its readability. So, in most instances, I will use the New Revised Standard, but when more clarity is needed in difficult passages, I'll switch to the NIV. And, when something needs to be more memorable, it's time for the King James. Like my two cars, they each serve their own specific purpose. And when combined, they will help to best start the presentation on how the history of the Christian churches collides with the history of the world. So that's the episode for this week, as well as the end of chapter one of the podcast. Join me next week when we get started on chapter two, the Pentateuch. Specifically, I will walk you through the origins on the book of Genesis. As I mentioned last week, You can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. Comments, questions, and essentially any correspondence can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the term Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.